as you fly over into the Middle East airspace, the captain makes an announcement like any captain on a Qantas plane. And I remember I was just sitting there looking down at my camouflage uniform, just thinking, this is real. This is it. I'm finally here. Situation on the ground, it was nighttime and you could see the explosives going off. And I remember just looking out the window with body armor and a helmet. Welcome to the podcast where we track down Australian war veterans, have a chat with them and hear their stories. I'm Alex Lloyd and this is Life on the Line. They were building positions in there if for a fight. If anything happened to us, by the time anyone got to us, I think it was chaos. the weather was so bad, there would be no blood. And the next thing I hear was alarms screaming. The very, very the soldiers didn't want to go into the ambushes, so they'd send the kids in first. So he was sent in first into an ambush and he got shot in the stomach. It was very hard for me, very hard for my family. And the pain burst. Proud of the crew, proud of what I've achieved and what I'm doing. The volunteer for service was in effect to put your life on the line. Today, I spoke with Cassie Collins, a mechanic turned officer of the Royal Australian Air Force. I'm Alex Lloyd, and I'm speaking today with Cassie Collins. Cassie, thank you for coming on the podcast. Morning, Alex. Thank you. Where did you grow up, Cassie? Um, I was born in Wagga Wagga, regional New South Wales. I lived on a farm with my mum, my dad, and a little sister who's about two and a half years younger. About 11 or 12, I moved up to the Sunshine Coast because my parents were chasing Sunshine Coast lifestyle. Uh, And then from there, I completed high school up on the sunny coast. What was the farm lifestyle like? Uh, It was fantastic. Uh, We had to drive a four-wheel motorbike to the end of our driveway to catch the school bus to school. And every weekend, we're helping Dad build farm fences and sort of fix trucks and proper farm work. We'll put to work as children. So quite a hands-on childhood. And yes, it... yeah, very much so. Was the Sunshine Coast more of a holiday? It was sort of daunting moving up there and I told my parents I hated them both for uh, missing my friends and I'll never make new friends. Um, but then within six months I had new best friends and a new circle and we're just going to the beach. So it just became normal again. What kind of hobbies were you into as a kid? Um, probably the most long-term hobby would have been ballroom dancing which is a bit odd because I grew up a tomboy. So to put the fake tan, the hair and the big ball gown on, I did that for a fair few years, compared to the Australian titles in 2003, placed in one of the events. Apart from that, uh, every other hobby you could think of, bit of a sports fan really. I think that's a good healthy mix though, being handy with farm fences and being sporty and then finding yourself uh, on the dance floor. Yeah, I think I get bored easily. So whether it's tennis for a semester at school and then I ring mum and tell her now it's going to be soccer and she has to go out and buy new equipment. She's very impressed. (laughs) Do you have any military history in your family? Um, It was only recently I found out uh, my mother's father, so my grandpa, was OO1 Army uh, Artillery and that's about all I know. He never did any wartime service but he also never spoke about his Australian service Um, uh, and then from there he went on to just be a farmer for the next 55 years. So apart from that, that's really all I have in the family. Where then did your interest in the military come from? I was studying accounting at the Sunshine Coast University uh, and I was in the lecture theatre and I looked around, a very boring lecture and thought, this is not me. So went ahead and deferred studies with every intention to finish a degree and then sort of went and did a famil visit. So it's where you go and familiarise yourself and you get to visit a military base and look at military aircraft. And I was pretty much in awe of this large aircraft, which we now know as a C-17, and I sort of thought, well, I quite like fixing things and this is pretty cool. Um, How do I join? And then someone told me that uh, I wouldn't make it through recruits. And I was like, well, 
Where do I sign? Challenge accepted. <laughs> yep. And then you rise to that challenge. Is that first um, initial experience seen the big plane that interests you in the Air Force in particular or why that branch over another branch of service? Um, I think going back to your question before about do I have any uh, sort of family in the military, at that point I had an incoming stepbrother, uh, 10 years my senior, who took me on that tour and he sort of gave me a bit of an overview of what the Army, Navy and Air Force was like from his perspective, albeit skewed because he was Air Force. And I tended to agree with him uh, on sort of the reasons why Air Force would be the best suit. Uh, And plus aeroplanes, I just really enjoy aviation. Tell me about your training. So in July 2010, uh, I got on a plane, got off at Wagga Wagga in New South Wales where the Air Force do their uh, recruit training. Uh, It was raining, it was freezing cold, and I remember it vividly. And as soon as I grabbed my bag off the conveyor belt, uh, there was a man in uniform yelling at me. Uh, And then I got on a bus, was shipped about five minutes up the road, uh, and then 10.4 weeks of recruit school started. It wasn't sort of as horrible as the movies make it out to be with yelling and screaming and kicking, um, but it also wasn't just sitting around in a classroom like I used to at uni. So it was pretty confronting, but also very rewarding. So as soon as I graduated recruit school, I went up the road to what's known as RAF School of Technical Training to do my mechanical training. Uh, Within the first few weeks, everything that the instructors were saying was super interesting and I sort of compared it to accounting where I just was watching the clock for the entire lecture, going the ins and outs of how an aircraft turbine system works or the hydraulic system works. It just somehow interests me and I couldn't get enough of it, essentially. So you go from being handy on the farm to handy in the hangar bay. When do you finish your training? Um, So I graduate on the 11th of the 11th of the 11th um, at 11am. So we did a Remembrance Day ceremony uh, before we graduated and marched off with our certificate in aeronautical engineering mechanical. Uh, And then from there, I posted to 36 Squadron, which is at RAF Base Ambly, just sort of west of Brisbane um, to work on the C-17. So I was lucky enough to get my first preference. The reason I joined the Air Force and I put that down as a first preference, I then ended up being a mechanic on the C-17s. So can you describe a bit for me your day-to-day at Amberley? Uh, sure. So I lived about half an hour away, sort of in the suburbs of Brisbane. Uh, so it'd be an early morning, uh, drive into work. It's just like any other job. Uh, and then every morning we'd have a team briefing. So where one of our engineers would sit down with a bunch of the maintainers or technicians and sort of hand out jobs. So whether there's aircraft arriving that were broken, we knew what was broken. So we'd sort of get tasked with different jobs. So, you know, group A, you know, a tyre and something on the engine and group B and on another aircraft it needs a refuel and lubricating the undercarriage and the tyres. And then from there we grab our tools and go out uh, and start our day fixing aircraft. Did you face any kind of cultural barriers coming in? I mean go back 30 years ago you wouldn't have found many women mechanics in defence. Did you face any kind of confrontation like that when you were training or early on? Uh, I was well aware of it from very early on uh, at my technical training at Wagga. At one point, I was the only girl in a classroom of about 16, which personally didn't worry me. I grew up on a farm with a lot of farm hands and my dad's friends uh, and neighbours' sons, so I was always surrounded by males. There was no real adversity being a female, I don't think, because I came from that background and I was comfortable with it. Um, when I did first post into the squadron, uh, one of the senior engineers pulled me aside and just said, hey, look, we know there's only three females in all our mechanical trades. My door is always open. Um, and at first I thought it was a throwaway line, but it happened to be true. I never needed a reason to go through the door, but it was 
lovely knowing that as you know a nervous 21 year old going into the Royal Australian Air Force there was someone like higher up who was a boss to look after me if I needed it. Still from a purely statistical point of view being a mechanic must have been a bit of a boys club. Was there any feeling early on for you or is she really pulling her weight can she? I guess posting into a new squadron is daunting for anyone of any gender and I didn't realise the lack of females in my trade. Uh, at 36 Squadron, there was approximately, I think, 80 to 90 uh, mechanics of all trades. And when I got there, there was two other females. Uh, and then one shortly after that went on maternity leave. So it was just myself and another lady called Rachel, uh, who we got on like a house on fire. But I guess early on, I was cautious that I probably wasn't as strong as the boys. Uh, and there were some tasks as a mechanic on a C-17 that... I physically couldn't do without getting to the gym and I was also conscious about pulling my weight not wanting to prove myself as such but just prove myself in, in a profession that I'd just begun and sort of have a positive reputation for being a good good mechanic and um, not finishing my training and, and sort of being mediocre so certain tasks where it's sort of like a two-man lift of an item on onto the the axle of the C-17 I sometimes struggled at that, but the other guys in the team were happy to help as long as they saw me giving it a go. So if I had just stood there and said, lift it on for me, the response would have been incredibly negative. <laughs> and colourful. Yes, very much so. Uh, and being mechanics on a flight line, uh, very colourful. Uh, but the fact that I was giving it a red hot crack uh, and getting in there and out of the entire team of, of the same task, I was always the dirtiest and I would just come back completely covered in grease or hydraulic fluid or, or whatever I, I was working with. So I think I really felt like I wanted to be good on a professional level and also a personal level. So, you know, my peers enjoyed working with me, not felt like I was a burden to them. That if you saw any chance to get oil on your face, you'd dive into it. Yes, very much so. Yeah. Everyone in the military needs to prove themselves. And that's uh, it's a culture of pressure that's encouraging to bring out the best in yourself and for everyone to give to the team. Did you feel the need to overly prove yourself? Did you have to prove yourself on an extra level? I didn't realise so much before I joined the military, but after I was in the Air Force, we are an organisation of extreme high achievers who are perfectionists and we have to be. So, you know, a pilot can't accidentally make a mistake flying an aeroplane or my job, I can't forget a nut or a bolt in my job. So we are incredibly professional and perfectionists. So although I did feel some pressure very early on to be a very good aircraft technician, so I got the respect of my peers and my bosses, um, it was more on a professional level knowing that possibly people's lives were in the balance of a mistake I could potentially make if I wasn't competent uh, at my tasks. But uh, being a female played into it a little bit early on. But once six months in the job, uh, I feel like the rest of my team were you know, pretty impressed with some of my skills and my knowledge. And after that, I essentially became gender neutral. So I, I wasn't one of the boys, but I also wasn't the only girl on the team. It was just, hey, Cass, go and change that tyre or, hey, Cass, we're going out for dinner tonight, do you want to come? So it, it sort of it took a while to sort of them to figure out where I placed myself in the team. Uh, and then once they became comfortable with me and I became comfortable with them, it was essentially like working with 10 big older brothers, who very smelly, dirty older brothers, but, yeah, very much older brothers in the end. 
And then on a Saturday night, you could have a shower and put a dress on and remind them who you are underneath the grease. Yeah, I always enjoyed doing that because I think uh, my mum had always spoken to me about this as well, thinking that, you know, you say to someone over the phone or over a podcast, you're a military air force mechanic and they stereotype just as you would with any other trade or industry. Uh, And then they see you on a Friday night out with your girlfriends with high heels and and a nice dress on hair and makeup. And it really confuses everyone how you can sort of be this grease monkey by day and, you know, a standard female by night. So I quite enjoy having the two, like my professional life. Um, I'm very roll your sleeves up, get in there. And then my personal life is cheese and wine, fine dining. Has the pendulum shifted the other way over your career that you've observed? Are we overcorrecting? Uh, a lot of senior mentors that I look up to in the Air Force um, are women, some men, some women, and I know they had it hard and the Air Force has done a lot of work to ensure where this incredible workplace that sort of fits into the 21st century, both culturally and technology-wise. So I know that it's been a long road and we still probably have a little way to go, but in some areas, yes, uh, my personal opinion that we have swung too far the other way. Uh, we needed it and we still need sort of the diversity of gender programs that we have in the Air Force, but uh, there are certain things where I believe we're overcompensating to make up for the past, whereas it'd be nice to have some consultation with currently serving females to see what we think at ground level would work best. There was a pilot at 36 Squadron who was a captain on the C-17s who is an absolutely incredible lady, incredible pilot, and she was always my biggest fan. Even if I hadn't decided to follow her career path of the pilot world, she, you know, she would always come in and check on me and like say, you know, how did the moving house go or how are the boys annoying you this week? Uh, and then when she found out I was transferring over to pilot, it was more of a I'll take you under my wing. Sorry. Um, and That's, she was uh... <laughs> she was incredibly pleased that she could help someone who she saw a lot of herself in at my age. So, yeah, there are women out there that sort of amaze me of what they've been able to achieve. And on that comment before about the pressure that you're right, if you miss, I want to sort of really draw attention to this, that if you miss like one bolt, then a small part within an aircraft can come undone or stop working correctly and then that's one tiny cog in the great machine and then that larger cog then stops working because a part of it's broken down that can lead to a chain reaction that can have catastrophic consequences that comes from one minor oversight there's a lot and that all comes back to you yeah it does and then that's very daunting when i first got to the real squadron with a real flying aircraft, not just training aids in a hangar in Wagga. Uh, I was very, very cognizant of that fact that you're taught from day one when you join the Air Force attention to detail, whether it's in the ironing of your uniforms or um, the neatness of your hair or that all the bolts you pulled out have then gone back in. You don't have a pocket full of uh, leftover. Uh, so there's a little bit of pressure there, but I quite enjoyed the high-performing aspects of the Air Force. So there's other uh, there's other jobs in and outside the Air Force where, you know, if you make a mistake, no big deal. You can shred it and retype it or whatnot but I think I really enjoyed the high expectations uh, of perfectionism and professionalism of being an aircraft mechanic it's very much part of the reason I think that I still chose pilot as well it's high performing um, perfectionism when you're flying an aircraft as well tell me a bit more about the c-17 I want to visualize this massive beast that you're working on 
Uh, right. So one of the first tasks you learn to do when you first arrive at the squadron as a brand new technician is marshalling an aircraft, so waving the wands. Uh, are you told to stand there and you're under direct supervision from a senior corporal possibly and he sort of guides you through marshalling it in. So it's taxing, all four engines are roaring and it's taxing towards you, albeit at a very slow walk, probably five, ten miles an hour. And as it gets closer to you, you're meant to stand your ground and marshal it in and and stop it about 20 feet in front of you. And I found myself just walking backwards, looking up. Like I just, I couldn't stand there and watch this massive aircraft with a huge wingspan and four engines coming towards me and just, it it didn't feel okay to just stand there and look at this gigantic aircraft. And then after a few years of doing it, you kind of sort of, in your head, you're going through what you're going to cook for dinner while you're doing it. So I guess it's like any other task in the beginning. It it seems ridiculously daunting, but after that, it just becomes like a normal job. What's your first deployment with 36 Squadron? My first deployment, apart from the domestic uh, bases around Australia, would have been to the Middle East. We fly over to supply a bunch of cargo to the Middle East region as a whole. Uh, There's a myriad of countries that the C-17 flies in and out of. And a part of the crew, apart from the pilots and the loadmaster, they always take maintainers with them to ensure the safety and security of the aircraft. And if it does break, it can be fixed so the mission is successful. Uh, And I was lucky enough to be put on a crew uh, to fly over to the Middle East a few times. Uh, That was super exciting because... Part of the reason I joined was to deploy. So I was finally getting to do what I trained so hard to do. It was very exciting. How long would you be over there for on a typical deployment? So it's very unusual the way uh, my old squadron deploys, anywhere between a week to two weeks. So the way the C-17 works, we're a global airlift, so we don't need to be there for three to six to nine months. Uh, We just fly over with a whole lot of cargo, drop it off, fly home. So it's a whole lot of individual missions to drop off stuff. You graduated barely 10 years after 9-11 and now you're finally deploying over to the Middle East and supporting our operations over there. Did you have any reflection on your now in these missions that are essentially a part of history 10 years on? Absolutely. So I was uh, getting up and getting ready for school. Uh, I was very quite young uh, and mum had the news on as she does every morning and she was just paused in front of the television, glued to it uh, and sort of said, I think you guys should come look at this to the rest of the family. So I remember 9-11 very vividly. It's not until I grew up um, and sort of was late in my teen years that I realised what an impact that had on a global scale and on us in Australia. But yeah, for sure, I definitely, I remember uh, as you fly over into the Middle East airspace, the, the captain makes an announcement like any captain on a Qantas plane. And I remember I was just sitting there looking down at my camouflage uniform, just thinking, this is real. This is it. I'm finally here. I get to do something that I'm super proud of doing. And yeah, there's definitely a moment of reflection the first time you fly into the Middle East on a military aircraft in a military uniform. What was the atmosphere like on base? It was electric. Uh, the, at this point, there was like a lot of people there. Uh, we were starting to move different aircraft around and it was a busy period my first time over there. And it was really refreshing as I got off the plane and walked into the camp to see the Australian flag everywhere. Uh, there was a coffee shop, which we were lucky enough to have, a little bit of home comfort over there. And it was just nice to see other people in the same uniform with the same flag on their shoulder as you, but also get to meet Americans and uh, English and other forces. So it was really enjoyable. Are there any other particular memories from that first deployment that stand out to you? Standing out on the flight line, uh, waiting for the refuel truck. Uh, So standing beside the C-17, waiting to refuel it. And the dust storm was rolling in from the north and it was hot. 
it was very dry. The sun almost disappeared behind these dust clouds and I believe it was about 51 degrees Celsius and I'd watched scenes like this on the local news for the last 10 odd years and I was kind of living something that I'd always seen on the news. So it was made me feel a bit more respect for, you know, the previous 10 years of operations that we've carried out in the Middle East, who, how arduous it can be at times. Actually, yeah, what time of year were you over there? I'm trying to get a picture of the landscape and from the aerial point of view as well as you're flying in and flying out. Uh, yeah, definitely. So I think, I believe it was July. I made a point of looking out the window a lot, although there's not that many windows. And it's just, it's just as you see it in the movies or the news, the news reports is just arid desert, uh, the odd palm tree. And in Australia, we have paddocks of cows. Over there, they have paddocks of camels. So that was, it was completely different landscape, unlike anything I'd seen before anywhere else in the world. Did you ever fly into the Middle East under any adverse conditions? Once we were flying uh, into Iraq and at some point it became quite dangerous, although we were quite high in the aircraft ourselves and we were under no threat or any you know, safety risk. The situation on the ground, it was nighttime and you could see the explosives going off. Uh, so we took certain precautions in the aircraft and I remember just looking out the window with body armour and a helmet and just feeling really proud, like proud of the crew, proud of what I've achieved and what I'm doing. And it was probably the one moment in my entire career where I actually felt that I was in the military and I was seeing the front line. Although I wasn't a part of it, I was at least seeing it. And it was just such a privilege to be a part of that and to help a country like that out and to wear the same uniform many others have worn before me. Uh, so then we flew into Iraq, um, did a delivery for want of a better term uh, and then returned. On another trip to the Middle East, though, it's never quite as smooth as that. Not everything goes to plan. So we got halfway home from the Middle East and uh, we were diverted to a completely different mission. So we left Australia Christmas Day um, about 10 a.m. And then about four days later, we got turned around and re-diverted to Italy. Uh, and then from Italy, we were at the UN staging base there where the logistics is, and we were taking uh, shipping containers in and out of South Sudan uh, when they had the breakdown in South Sudan. So we were one of the only uh, aircraft and militaries around the world over the Christmas period that responded to the request from the South Sudanese and the UN of providing aid. So that was pretty incredible to be halfway home to Australia and then to be re-diverted and be staged out of Italy for about three weeks. Just for the listener, can you provide a little bit more background on the Sudan situation at that time? Yeah, so it's called uh, Operation Aslan. Uh, it continues as we speak. It is the UN's way of helping stabilise the country, provide aid. So what we did, we provided aid and in the shipping containers there was tents, water purification kits, bottled water, uh, and anything else, food rations that you could want. At that point, there was thousands and thousands of displaced civilians living in camps uh, and they were running out of supplies. So it was incredible to be a part of a mission that was helping people and they were in dire needs. And we pulled up at the South Sudan airport in uh, Africa and I'd never been to Africa it was an incredible moment to think, you know, three days ago I was in the Middle East heading home and now I'm in Africa providing aid. It was really wonderful. Everyone was waving at you from the fence and it was it was fantastic. Well, it's quite a personal landmark moment for you that you've come from the farm, you've seen the plane in the hangar and gone, oh, geez, that looks cool. I want to get involved in that. And now you're on another continent helping, giving humanitarian aid to those direly 
in need. Is that your proudest moment in uniform? Yes, definitely. Uh, Definitely. It was knowing we'd had a direct impact on those people's lives. Uh, I heard stories from other Australian Defence Force members that had been living in South Sudan for the past four months, uh, how they were sort of on their last bottles of water and on their last tins of food. And they said without this delivery this week, people would have started to deteriorate and possibly die. So it was absolutely incredible to know that everyone on that C-17 crew, pilots and uh, aircraft technicians, and loadmasters had a direct impact. And if one of us happened to not be there, the mission may not have happened successfully. I want to get a bigger picture of your life back home as an Air Force mechanic. Um, like what does the rest of your uh, squadron look like on base? Uh, what are the career opportunities for you to uh, try and find a new challenge within that or push through the ranks? I'm just trying to fill in the details. So the squadron back home, I think, has approximately 200 people uh, ranging from logistics and supply through to admin support, pilots, um, life support, which do sort of the oxygen masks in the aircraft, mechanics. There's everything you could think of. And there's plenty of opportunity for promotions and posting to other aircraft. But for myself, I sort of saw pilot as the most challenging out of what the Air Force had to offer, the most exciting. I really enjoyed my job as an aircraft technician, but I felt like I needed more of a challenge. So then from there, I looked at what our pilots did on the C-17 and I thought that's absolutely fantastic how they're under constant stress and pressure and not only flying an aircraft like that, but also maintaining morale of the crew and safety of the crew and planning. Um, So I went down the path and I applied to be an Air Force pilot. I'm a very hands-on person as well, so whether it was fixing them or flying them, I thought that I'd kind of be really good at either uh, and fully aware of how difficult the process was to even get in and get a spot on pilot's course. I was pushed along by a lot of colleagues, other pilots and friends and family to apply for pilot uh, and just see how it goes. And so in 2015, you commissioned to pilot but were unsuccessful in graduating. For the civilian audience as well, can you explain the distinction there of commissioning to pilot but not fully becoming one? Okay, so when I applied for pilot, I applied for the position as a pilot, uh, went through the officer's training school at eSale, uh, graduated that with a commission, and then I went on to complete my pilot training. Uh, about six months into that, I was unsuccessful. So essentially I failed from pilot's course. Uh, and then because I had a commission, there was a whole other range of jobs and possibilities apart from being a mechanic that were now opened. Uh, and then from there, I chose what we call an operations officer or an OPSO. Uh, and then that career, I found the best mix for someone with my aviation background, my mechanical skills to essentially manage pilots and manage aeroplanes and still be organising and heavily involved in the aviation sphere. And that's turned out to be completely rewarding as well. And when we say you were applying to be a pilot, it's not exactly going and trying to get your driver's licence. Becoming a pilot in the Royal Australian Air Force is incredibly demanding and a lot of people want to do it. Do you know at all, or at least anecdotally, how many uh, people apply for it, how many women apply for it, and what the pass rate is like? Absolutely. So uh, when you say you apply for a job, people think, you know, you hand in a resume, go for an interview. Um, That's maybe 1% of the application process for pilots. So it took almost two years through um, aptitude testing, math testing, medicals, psych testing, psychological testing. And then when you get there, you sort of think that 
you know, you over the hurdle, but it's only really just beginning. So I believe when I first sort of Googled it, there was about a thousand people apply every year. And out of that, there's approximately 126 people every year start on pilot's course. And of those, I believe 70% of males pass and only 50% of females pass pilot's course. So worldwide, we're known as one of the more challenging flying, military flying schools uh, in the world. And our selection process is, I would say, the the hardest to pass in the world. Why do you think there's that statistical disparity? Uh, between men and women. Uh, I, I put it down to you now uh, being on the inside as well and being there and failing it is learning styles. We have a set amount of time to learn the curriculum and if you fall below that curve, you then fail there is plenty of chances for remedials and assistance and it's a it's a pretty good program but i believe for me it was like drinking out of a fire hose and the teaching style is very much aimed at uh, the school leaver who had grade A's who's most likely going to be a male with a deep seated history in aviation so coming in as a female with a late love for aviation uh, I, I think maybe that different learning and different teaching techniques don't quite mesh. And in that compressed time frame, there wasn't enough time for me to learn the content. Now, although you didn't pass pilot course, did you still find it a positive experience? I mean, what could you take away from it? It was incredibly positive. In the beginning, I was completely devastated that I didn't pass. As you could imagine, it takes two years to get in and then six months of the hardest work I've ever done in my entire life. So, you know, three to four hours a night, every night studying six days a week. Uh, And it was devastating. But I take away incredible amounts of achievement, like this overwhelming feeling I've achieved, like even just getting a spot on pilot's course, I look back now and think it's incredible. Uh, Invaluable aviation experience, intimate knowledge of how to fly an aircraft. So I feel like now in my current job, I, I, I know what pilots are going through and I know how they fly. I know what aircraft technicians are going through and I know how maintenance is carried out on an aircraft. And I feel like I'm the guy in the middle or girl in the middle that sort of puts it all together and ensures that when an aircraft comes to the RAF base that I manage, it's seamless. The pilots are looked after, the aircraft is looked after. So I've got a lot out of pilots course. And if I could go back and do it again, there's not a whole lot I would do differently. I think just the uh, fire hose effect was just not for me. Tell me where you go to from there. So from here, um, I post down to a unit called Air Training Wing and I start to reevaluate my career options. Uh, I contemplated going back to being an aircraft technician because I really love that. But I also thought what a complete waste of time and money uh, and brain power that all this learning in the aviation environment was in the piloting environment and the officer environment. So OTS teaches you great leadership and you know personal qualities. So I thought maintain my commission and go into a career that suits my personality. I love people, I love talking and I love organising and I also love aviation and the perfect fit for me in the organisation now I've found is operations officer. So from there, same process, uh, less difficult, but I still had to apply for operations officer uh, and conduct a boarded interview. And then from there I was selected and did a five-week course in how to manage aerodromes and flying squadrons. And that's what you do today? That's what I do today. So I'm currently posted to the Air Force Base at East Sale, uh, about three hours east of Melbourne here in Victoria. Uh, and I manage the base operations. So visiting aircraft, ensuring they have a spot to park, fuel, accommodation for the crew, as well as base events and media events, graduation parades, uh, sort of a jack of all trades. Talk me through the human leadership aspect of your current role. Uh, so currently in my role, I have... Uh, 
three staff that work with me. And I say with me because we're all a part of a team that on any given day, one of us could be out of the office. We're not sort of chained to our desk. So I might go down to a flight line and meet the crew of a visiting C-130 Hercules aircraft to ensure that they have everything they could need. Or uh, another member of our team could be at the front gate signing in an older veteran um, because his mother's ashes are laid to rest on our RAF base. So it's pretty fun. Uh, I get to mentor and lead junior airmen. Um, I also get to work with high-ranking Air Force officers. So I feel like I'm in this incredible position where I have access to every trade, um, every specialization within the Air Force at my base, where I could be talking to a pilot one minute uh, and then a member of the public the next. So it's pretty dynamic. Uh, it keeps you a bit busy, and that's what I love because I get bored incredibly easy. What's the next challenge you want to aspire towards? The next challenge I would really like to achieve is something on an international platform, but still wearing the Air Force uniform. So whether it be an exchange posting overseas to share knowledge and work with other Air Forces around the world, or just deploy from a more permanent perspective versus just the C-17 fleeting visits, uh, I'd like to see if I can make a difference overseas um, on a more larger scale. You're a real 21st century servicewoman absolute epitome of the modern Australian Air Force. How do you find when you're walking through the streets going to get your cup of coffee and you might have left the base for a bit or you just need to be passing through town and you're in uniform, how does the day-to-day reaction of the public greet you? I I still am not used to the looks. They're they're not positive or negative looks. They're just, oh, someone in uniform, uh, a civilian will look at you. And then being a 28-year-old female, I don't think the stereotypical soldier looks like I look, but I'm proud of it. And I'm proud of what we achieve as an Air Force and what we achieve as a Defence Force. So I don't make a point of going through town in my uniform, but when I do, I sort of wear it with pride. It's very interesting being in the modern Air Force and a lot of my civilian friends back home don't quite understand exactly what it is I do uh, and they're still stuck in the thinking I crawl through mud and sort of do chin-ups on my way to work. But in in reality, it's just a normal job. You mentioned before we started recording that you'd also been overseas in the States and you'd been in uniform. Can you recount that story for me? So part of our C-17 training for all all aircraft technicians is to go to the base and American C-17s do their training and learn from the Americans. It's about an 11, 12-week course. So I was lucky enough to go over there to uh, McCord Fort Lewis Air Force Base in Seattle, Washington, and their base is massive. So being at a Starbucks on my way to work in uniform on an American base was just proof that we are part of a much bigger sort of military worldwide with our coalition partners but a Vietnam veteran who was easily identifiable by you know his hat and his badges and his age uh, came up to me in the Starbucks line shook my hand said thank you for your service I sort of let him know I wasn't an American but thank you he said it doesn't matter Uh, we're all part of the one team and he asked if he could buy my coffee to which I refused and said I think I should be buying yours Uh, and then we squabbled and it wasn't until my sergeant sort of reached over and whispered please, Cassie, let him just buy you the coffee. Uh, And we sat down and we chatted for 10 minutes before work. So it's very different. Uh, Again, when you walk down the street over there in America in uniform, people will smile at you, people come and shake your hand, young children will wave. It's very different over in America. It's very humbling, that's for sure. We're a country, I think, that prides ourselves on honouring and respecting our veterans and the fervour around Anzac Day and, to an extent, Remembrance Day but we don't have that consistently all the year round per se, whereas you have a Vietnam veteran in America just coming up to you and saying thank you very much on a random day of the week. 
Where do you think that cultural difference comes from? I'm unsure. I asked myself the same question. So in America, where I was stationed, they had uh, Military Monday, where a whole bunch of restaurants and cafes did a 20% discount on food and beverages. I think it has something to do with the mainstream media and the way they portray their servicemen and women in America. There's a lot of flag waving on TV and welcome home parades. Uh, there's a lot of hero-esque movies from Hollywood. Uh, whereas in Australia, I think we're the quiet achievers. Uh, I think a lot of Australian military just go overseas do their job uh, and then come home to their families. I'd also describe you as a quiet achiever, Cassie, and doing this podcast, trying to find people to put their hands up and participate, it's difficult. People sometimes don't want to tell their stories because it's too hard or they don't want to relive moments. But most of the time, if there's any hesitation, it's because they say, oh, I don't have much to say. You don't want to hear from me. And I heard similar comments to that effect from you. What made you put your hand up and agree to be interviewed today. And why do you think we have this different quiet achievers attitude in Australia where we also have the love of our diggers and the legacy of Gallipoli so much in our cultural identity? So today I think I, I spoke to my boyfriend at length about coming on today and said the same thing. I don't have, I'm not a World War II hero. Uh, I've only been in the military eight years. Uh, and he said, yes, but your background, you're a female mechanic on one of Australia's biggest cargo planes uh, and then you flew a military aircraft solo upside down, albeit a very small military aircraft, you still got to fly aerobatics solo in uniform. Um, so he said "You, everyone has their own story and he's like just use it as a platform to educate peers and I think that's part of our disconnect in Australia between when you say veteran, I would say most Australians think of the you know older gentlemen from the World War One, World War Two, Vietnam era, uh, and you, no one ever instantly thinks of the you know thirty-five year old father who's come home from Afghanistan or Iraq without a leg. We just, I think, we disconnect. I think we don't think of veterans from a broad perspective, genders, army, navy, air force, and all campaigns. Uh, whereas Americans do, they they will thank a World War you know one or two veteran just as much as they'll thank a current day Iraq veteran. Tell me about the time you flew the aircraft upside down. So uh, after a certain amount of flights at the Air Force's basic flying training school in Tamworth, uh, you go for a fly with an instructor. Once he deems you safe and competent, he signs you off and then he waves goodbye. And it's not... <laughs> that sounds reassuring. Yeah, it's very reassuring. It's not the first time you go solo. Uh, before that, you do circuit solo, which is where you just fly up and around and around the aerodrome. So you get a bit of a practice being up there alone. I still remember the first time I ever took off solo. I felt like I'm glad no one was listening. It was kind of like I was on a roller coaster. It was just a whole lot of squealing. Uh, very very uh, professionally. Um, and then from there, a few more flights later, a few more weeks later, when they're more and more confident in your ability and your safety, you sort of, like I was mentioning, they wave goodbye and you fly about 30 nautical miles away from the aerodrome to a training area, like a specific safe area. Uh, and then you have a set left and right of what you can and can't do while you're solo and what you've been checked off. And uh, we'd been checked off safe solo for aerobatics. So you're allowed to use aileron rolls, loops um, and a few other manoeuvres out in the training area, which was probably the second most incredible point in my career. Just being in an aircraft all alone, it just all of a sudden got very quiet. Uh, the radios seemed very quiet and it was, yeah, a pretty proud moment going from never really flying an aircraft before I went to pilot's course through to by myself 30 miles from an airport uh, upside down. 
it was it was absolutely exhilarating. That sounds so awesome. I am very jealous. <laughs> well, Cassie, your passion and energy is fantastic to watch, and I think our Air Force is very lucky to have you in it. Thank you for coming and speaking with me today. Lovely. Thanks very much, Alex. That was my conversation with Cassie Collins. If you enjoyed the conversation, please let us know by leaving a five-star rating and review in iTunes. It helps our rankings in Apple Podcasts, which spreads these inspiring Australian stories to a wider audience. Learn more about us on our website, www.lifeonthelinepodcast.com. Like us on Facebook and Instagram at Life on the Line Podcast and on Twitter at LOTLpod. Life on the Line is brought to you by Thistle Productions. Artwork by Big Cat Design. Music by Dan Van Workhoven. Have a special Anzac Day tomorrow. And when we say those three words after the ode of remembrance, think of servicemen and servicewomen like Cassie Collins and their stories. Lest we forget. <laughs>